gosh, I am so, so excited to have two honored guests, foundational figures in comics studies, Matthew Smith, professor at Radford University in Virginia. Welcome, Matthew. Good morning. Um, Co-author also of like, gosh, a ton of books. Um, and then Randy, uh, also co-author, editor of many, many books um, at Henderson State University and director of comics studies program there. Welcome, Randy. Thanks for having us. So we are going to jump right in because, you know, a lot of us um, wondering what, uh, why, why, why get into this business of comics? Um, why, what the heck, what's your, what's your, I guess, origin story in both of these regards? Because obviously you've spent a lot of time, a lot of energy really tr um, at the kind of forefront of comic studies clearing spaces for the research, the writing, the teaching? Yeah, Frederick, I think, you know, uh, the question is why, you know, why not? Uh, <laughs> Randy and I, you know, have always responded, I think, to things that have interested us intellectually. And, uh, you know, not to say that there aren't a thousand topics out there that we might find of interest, but because our, our passion has always been centered on pop culture and comics in particular, um, it makes sense to want to gravitate towards and focus on those things that you find meaning in. And the fact that we're both lifelong comics readers, you know, just see, says to us that we need to decode some of this. We need to make sense of this. What's the connection that we feel to this material? We know others feel that connection. And as scholars, you know, we recognize there were, there were very few people or comparatively few people out there who were looking at comics with the same kind of critical eye that we knew we could bring to the topic. And so I think uh, our origin story is, you know, we, we've been readers and we became scholars and to unify both the, the scholarly impulse and the readerly interest made a lot of sense to us as we matured in our own studies. And we were joining a pretty robust tradition of looking at popular culture already. I mean, the, the scholars at the Frankfurt School recognized that popular culture was powerful uh, and we're, kind of concerned about the dark consequences there might be from that. Um, but then, you know, more optimistically, um, Ray and Pat Brown were looking at popular culture in a more joyous way and did a lot to establish uh, pop culture studies in America. But um, not very often did those folks consider comics. Um, and um, some of their basis for why study popular culture is kind of like nutritionists say, you are what you eat. Um, you know, and we are what we, we read, we listen to, we watch. Um, and an awful lot of people over the years have read comics. Um, so we, we felt that was an area of popular culture that wasn't getting a lot of attention. Um, my, my origin story goes back to the 80s when um, uh, I was doing a paper in a, a film class on how cinematic um, Frank Miller's Daredevil was, and the professor said, hey, you should pursue that for a doctoral dissertation. And I, I thought to myself, really, I can do that? Um, so I just did, even though <laughs> I was a little worried that uh, the committee might say no. And then so that kind of set me on that, that path, and I thought, well, why leave that path? Matthew, did you find a, f a similar path uh, early on like that? I'm curious. You know, I... Uh... Every time a, a professor would uh, make an assignment and give free reign to the class to, to sort of explore things as an undergraduate, I always gravitated towards comics. 
And so I, I just found myself doing assignment after assignment. I did my master's thesis, uh, analyzing letters pages in X-Men comics. And, um, you know, any opportunity I had, I was sort of flirting with the field. Um, I didn't know that there was this sort of body of people out there who were already kind of doing this work. And I was so excited when I found them, but I was so far along in my work uh, when I discovered them that uh, um, I wish I'd known about them sooner. I, I might've had the courage to do a dissertation like Randy did on the subject. I did something a little safer, a little more uh, traditional, uh, but shortly after that, I was like, I don't know if I want to do this the rest of my life. I really want to talk about comics. And so I, I found myself gravitating back again to comics time and again. Yeah, it's really interesting. I remember, you know, uh, as an undergraduate as well, um, you know, the kind of excitement of bringing things like Watchmen into literature, you know, classroom spaces. And I was like completely blown away. Um, and I was at Berkeley, so it wasn't just Watchmen. We also had Love and Rockets and other things that were entering into those spaces. But yeah, for me as well, I was like, wow, I, I've loved this stuff. I had to set it aside for a while to kind of focus on getting into college. And now they're saying I can go back to it. Not bad, right? Um, let me ask you, so 2011, Critical Approaches to Comics, really foundational book for all of us. And there's, I have so many sort of questions about this, but one of them is, the big one is, like, what is the Matthew Smith, Randy Duncan vision and approach to comics? Well, I think that, that began at uh, San Diego Comic-Con when uh, Matt Smith approached me. Uh, and said he had a proposal for a textbook, and he had heard that I was maybe working on something similar. Um, and it turned out that our outlines were a great deal alike. Uh, and, and so we, we kind of started off with a common vision for that introductory textbook, but we realized that was part of a larger vision that we had um, of what did we think needed to be done in this emerging field of comic studies. And we both had the idea that we would like to be able to contribute some of the, the resources, the building blocks that a field needs to grow. And so one of those was uh, a basic textbook, um, just the same way that you know in, in film studies, um, people started to do an introduction to film uh, studies textbook. Um, and so after we did that, after The Power of Comics was published, we thought about well, what else is needed? And so, you know, if you take an introductory course, where do you go after that? Maybe an upper level course in which you do some analysis and you need different methodologies to apply to comics. So it just seemed like the logical progression. Um, and then that took us eventually to um, secret origins of comic studies and kind of looking at how did this field develop, which is, is it's something else we thought a, a field needed. And I think with this book in particular, you know, we, uh, both the, the textbook, the first textbook and this book, you know, we're also thinking about ways to teach it, right? Because while a lot of work has been done in sort of beginning to look at comics as cultural artifacts, there hadn't been a lot of work prior to this and really taking it into the classroom and thinking about ways to help our colleagues sort of make that transition very naturally. Um, it seems to me, you know, just coming up through the field, uh, if you wanted to propose a new course to administrators, uh, one of the easiest arguments you could make about justifying it was, hey, there's already a textbook. 
clearly other people are, are using this or are teaching this uh, because there's enough critical mass that there must be some kind of resource there for it. So we wanted to enable people to make that argument. We knew people were teaching analysis of comics in their classes and we thought, and with this book in particular, here's a tool then for people to be able to say, yeah, we can do this and that. I've been teaching a, a television criticism course for a few years called Critical Approaches to Television, which really was an inspiration in part for this text. And what we loved about, uh, what I loved about that text was there was an explanation of the methodology and then an example of it. And, and really giving people that kind of um, two-part toolkit, as it were. So, you know, here's auteur criticism and here's an example of doing auteur criticism. Here's formalism and here's an example of it. And really helping people to see like it, it's, it's intellectual, it's challenging, but it's not that hard. You can do it, right? And, and here's someone who's demonstrating to you exactly how to do it so you could help students along in the process of doing it themselves. Beautiful, yeah. Um, speaking of really kind of opening spaces and making, creating and writing in ways that are very accessible, the power of comics in 2009, gosh, what a like exquisite, you know, book, right? That really, I don't know, it's um, exactly kind of what you were talking about. It's both the sort of theoretical tools, but then showing how we can put them into play um, over a whole range. Um, let me ask you, like, can you walk us through how something like the tools and the approach in the power of comics might enrich our understanding of Invincible or Moon Knight or both? Yeah, so, you know, the, the subtitle of the power of comics is really intentional. So it's about history, form, and culture, right? And in each of those areas, we hope to raise students' awareness of, of comics as a phenomenon. And so um, if you look at the culture section, for example, uh, we have a chapter in there about the business of comics. And when I look at these two examples, the first thing that comes to my mind is, well, they're the, the product of a cultural industry, right? There's a corporate uh, parent who uh, owns certain intellectual property and they want to capitalize on that intellectual property by putting out content on a regular basis. And so something like Moon Knight has lived long beyond uh, the creator's original vision Marvel, as a corporate entity, continues to push out Moon Knight product because they know there's an audience there who will consume it. In contrast, Invincible is a creator-owned property, and Image has, of course, developed its brand by being that sort of creator-friendly approach. Uh, and Robert Kirkman's Invincible uh, is, is a really good example of someone who uh, uses that venue uh, as opposed to selling off his intellectual property to Marvel. Uh, to retain ownership and creative control over things. So uh, that's one example. Randy, you had another way that you looked at those two examples as well. Right. Well, I thought of form. Uh, in form section, we talk about genre, and um, we use we have a chapter on the superhero genre because that's what's most known to the general public about, about at least American comics. Um, and so um, these two examples kind of show that there's a recognizable core to um, the superhero genre, yet a great flexibility. Um, so, for example, you know, the Peter Coogan um, Powers Identity Mission uh, idea and all the other conventions of superhero comics are in both of these comics, but they're obviously very different sorts of characters and, and explore, you know, di different aspects of, of the superhero um, genre. 
Um, but in our in our genre chapter, we we also talk about um, how there's some universal aspects to the superhero. You know, um, Campbell's monomyth, uh, Otto Rank's you know, idea of the the birth of the hero often follows some of the same things. You know, the um, the, the child who uh, is either separated from parents or doesn't know the true parentage or is put in um, a basket on the river or a spaceship. <laughs> um, and uh, at the same time, uh, there's an argument that there are some things that are um, very much part of American culture and that, that the superhero um, became so popular in America maybe because of um, you know, the, the idea of the Emersonian hero, the, um, the rugged individualist, the you know, self-reliant, um, got this indomitable will, is idealistic, uh, um, and emerges at a time when we're an emerging industrial power and, and military power and a land of skyscrapers. And so um, there's a lot of different tools um, that are in the genre chapter that, that kind of let you look at the superhero genre like you would look at a diamond, keep turning it around and seeing different different facets of it. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, I of course, all of us have found and the power of comics to be so important. And in fact, it was uh, re-released with a, a updated, right, in 2015, um, which says a lot about its significance in the space of comic studies. Um, you know, I, I do wonder this question, and, and Randy, I know you uh, put together this Creating Comics as Journalism, Memoir, and Nonfiction, um, and you know, superheroes, we, we know they're, they're like, we have the MCU, right? The Marvel Cinematic Universe all over the place, kind of in the water we drank. But there's this other really important part of comics. Um, maybe uh, we could talk a little bit about that and the difference between fiction and nonfiction, why this matters, um, what this space actually is doing for, for comics, for readers, for the, the industry. Okay. Good. Well, um, I think nonfiction has been part of the form from the beginning, you might say. You know, cave paintings that document a hunt, um, broadsheets that talk about a grisly murder or the, the tortures of a martyr, um, uh, up to um, you know, Max Gaines, uh, who's one of the, the people who jump-started the, the American comics industry, had this passion for using comics to teach uh, kids about history. Um, kind of an unrealized goal that, that he had, but um, Will Eisner um, training troops how to clean their their guns. Um, you know, so um, and actually, Will did lots of things with educational comics. Uh, you know, little pamphlets to show people how not to get a finger cut off at the machine they're working in a factory. Um, but if we take it to more contemporary times, if you think about what's taught in classrooms most. Nonfiction. It's it's memoir. Our critically acclaimed works: uh, Mouse, Fun Home, Persepolis, March, are all memoir. Um, and so, in some ways, um, uh, it's kind of come to dominate, particularly in English departments, um, what what's taught um, in there. But there's there's a whole lot of, of work being done with nonfiction comics that people aren't all that much aware of. I mean, we're more aware now of the graphic medicine uh, approach. Um, but again, most of that's memoir. Um, but um, 
World Comics Finland, um, which began a while back um, and, and spread to uh, another incarnation in India, World Comics India, would go into developing nations, sometimes into villages that didn't have much in the way of mass media, do workshops to train people to make comics. And um, they would make nonfiction comics about social issues or problems you know, in their village and things they wanted to educate people about. And these were usually not things that were published. They were put up on a wall or sometimes on the side of a truck that drove around town and stopped so that people could read it. Um, I just um, last week discovered uh, new narrative that, that's happening um, in um, Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, and it's um, an effort to educate people in multiple ways um, from scholarly journal articles to creating comics. And they do an awful lot with nonfiction comics. And then there's things like um, the Nib that not enough people are familiar with probably that, that has some very powerful political comics. Um, so it is, um, it's a very vibrant um, grassroots kind of approach to, to comics that's happening much more than people realize. Um, and um, as for how it relates to um, fiction comics, obviously people are using the form in many similar ways. I think there are some, some um, different characteristics when you get to, to fiction and nonfiction, but um, as, as a lot of the people who have written memoirs have said, um, you can't take this necessarily as true. Um, because there's always a creative element uh, in it. You know, like Nietzsche said, there's no facts, there's just interpretations. So even when you're doing something that's nonfiction, it's your interpretation of it. Um, and you know, um, we get into that a lot in, um, in the Creating Comics book, but also for that second edition of The Power of Comics, we added, okay, kind of at my prompting, we added uh, a genre chapter on memoir becomes so important and we kind of explore that, that idea of um, not truth but authenticity uh, of the experience and emotional truth uh, that comes across in those. Anyway, I could go on and on about nonfiction comics obviously uh, and I, I should say that uh, I owe a lot of, of this to my colleagues here at Henderson, uh, Michael Ray Taylor and David Stoddard. We did a uh, a conference presentation in Germany at the Comfort Conference on uh, nonfiction comics, and that kind of just then sort of grew into um, when we did another presentation. Actually, Michael did a presentation at the conference in the U.S., and a Rutledge editor was there and said, "Hey, could that be a book?" Um, and I think Matt and I were busy with lots of other stuff. So when Michael came back to campus and asked that question, I go, "I don't know about that. How am I going to have time for that?" Um, but I'm glad. I'm glad that we we did it. And Randy Duncan, it's such a pleasure to work with. It's no wonder those colleagues were lining up to get their shot at uh, working with the master. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, both of you um, are a pleasure to work with, and I can speak from uh, direct experience and putting together comic studies here and now and publishing it in your Rutledge Advances in Comic Studies. Why a series and have there been surprises with this? Um, all sorts of kind of questions percolating around. You know, it takes, you know, running a series is not something you just kind of take lightly, right? There's a lot of work in it. So, yeah, maybe we can talk about that. You know, I think uh, part of the attraction for us, and it was very gracious of Rutledge to approach us about uh, taking on the editorship of this, 
uh, we'd had a really good relationship working with them in our previous books and and they asked if we would be willing to take on something like this and they said what would be your vision and and we really talked about um, you know pushing a more communicative side to things um, in terms of of what we would like to contribute um, it seems like other presses have kind of squared away the the sort of um, straight up sort of literary analytical uh, take on comics. So we want to study more of sort of the phenomena of comics as it was practiced and as people were expressing it and as they were celebrating it and as they were in, uh, envisioning it and living it and adapting it and doing all kinds of great things with it. So um, we were taking things in a slightly different direction and, and Rutledge was very agreeable to that notion that they would, they would be willing to do that. We also said we, we'd really like to bring in more international voices and, and see if we could re represent people in other uh, traditions uh, than just the American. Um, and that's proven to be a little bit of a challenge, I think, in the process. Uh, we, we've gotten a couple of really strong uh, entries in the international sense, but we're still looking to expand that part of, uh, of the project. And uh, we, we've just been taken aback by uh, the quality of uh, projects that have come uh, to us um, uh, and the kind of people we've been able to work with on this series. It's just, it's been remarkably humbling for us to have uh, very accomplished figures in the field uh, come and say, I've got a project, uh, would you be interested in working with me on it? And uh, uh, without, without uh, exception, uh, it's been a very positive experience. We're now in our 10th or 11th book, Randy, is that right? I think so, yeah, yeah. And so I'm in process. Um, I was excited about this possibility from the beginning, but I didn't say yes right away. Actually, I had a couple of conversations with Tom Inge, um, who uh, <laughs> had been kind of a mentor to me. Uh, I started presenting at the Popular Culture Association in the comics uh, division when there was like a handful of us. There were about a dozen people, and, and Tom was, was kind of the mentor to all of us. Um, and, and he said, well, Randy, if you do this, you're going to produce less of your own scholarship. Just know that. Um, and he said, but on the other hand, it's important that people do this. And, and so he eventually said, I think you should. And I'm, I'm glad we did. But he, he also said, you know, it's going to be an ongoing workflow. Because um, you're, you're always looking at proposals, then looking at manuscripts of other books. And um, some of our colleagues probably um, dread to see us approaching them after they've given a presentation because we do, like vultures, swoop down on people. Uh, when we like something and we go, hey, yeah, <laughs> have you thought about the possibility of a book? Or, yeah. um, so, but no, it, it, as Matt said, there's been wonderful stuff that's come out of it. So very, very yeah. glad that we did this. Let me ask you for the kind of uh, newbies to this space, what in a kind of ele elevator pitch version is the difference between a communications model of comic studies versus maybe a more kind of English literary or literary approach to comic studies? You know, I, my master's degree is in English and then I switched over to communication for my doctorate. And I always tell students, you know, the, the difference between my experience studying in English and studying communication was English was always very interested in uh, finding one's voice, right? Let's, let's find the author's voice and let's give people the encouragement and the strength to make sure they're expressing themselves. And the subtle difference I found in switching to communication was the focus shifts from necessarily the author to the audience. 
And so a little less about what the author needs to say, a little bit more about the audience needs to hear. And so a, a subtle shift in the communication process, because they're both in, interested in communication, but I think communication studies focus a little bit more on that audience. And what's the impact on the people with whom we are engaged in conversation? What's the impact or result of that kind of uh, interaction? Uh, and so if we look at that the relationship, the, the subtle shift from one side to the other, I think literary studies, a little more about what the author has to say, uh, communication, a little bit more about what the audience does in response to what is said. Yeah. Although I think this is where Matt and I complement each other well, because Matt comes more from the communication studies side, the study side, and I come more from the rhetorical theory side, um, where we are thinking a little bit more about the, the strategies that the author, now we're still concerned about, you know, the impact that those have on the audience, but we're kind of looking at it as, um, what's the rhetorical situation in which this was created. Part of that rhetorical situation is who is it intended for, what purpose does the person have, what, what effect do they want to have on that audience. And so um, when we look at things more from the rhetorical perspective, I think that word strategy, which a lot of people in communication find to be kind of a dirty word <laughs> uh, because they associate with manipulation sometimes. I was, I was at a um, a conference of a hundred department chairs back when I was a department chair, and we were trying to um, devise the official definition of communication for uh, <laughs> for the National Communication Association. Um, actually, I think back in those days it was still the SCA, the Speech Communication Association, and uh, and and we would suggest words, and I'd suggested strategy, and it, it kind of made it to the the final eight of us, we kept doing this green dot thing and voting and, and narrowing down. And it, it, was, it was the most bitter debate over the people that thought, no, we can't have strategy in there. That sounds terrible. Um, but for those of us looking at it from a rhetorical perspective, you know, that's always an aspect of it. And, mm -hmm. and so um, communication is not, you know, a monolithic approach. And, and I, I think it, it is using some of the methodologies from the field that make it different, you know, from, from what would happen in English. Yeah, no, and really um, a, a unique opportunity as well, given comic studies kind of nascence, you know, it's sort of um, forming formation as we speak as a place to really kind of allow for this breathing room between kind of strategies, textual strategies, intention, maybe even the kind of word intentionality, but also just as importantly, kind of how this document, this artifact is circulating in the world and resonating with audiences. Um, speaking of which, you both also are involved in curating of exhibits. This is a very different maybe um, way of uh, educating, of informing, of kind of allowing the space of comics to breathe, but in a way that enriches our understanding of them. Can you guys talk a little bit about that? Well, one thing we all think also I think is important is, um, I guess, kind of uh, public scholarship. Um, getting some of our enthusiasm for comics, but are some of our enthusiasm based on an understanding of, of what we find important about the about the form, about the art form, and and, and, and about the history of it, um, out there to the to the public in a way that's that's more than just superficial. Um, yeah. So 
um, we are very excited to be a part of this because basically we were being paid to sit around and talk about comic books. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, so that we after we got over the initial shock of really <laughs> people are going to pay us to do this this thing we would do for free, um, we 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 kind of started to get intentional about it <laughs> to use that word. Um, would we like this to be? So we were involved in the early stages in putting together the proposal that was sent to Marvel to try to pitch this idea because it was a um, it's a German exhibition company that had been approached by Euro Disney, I think. And then, mm -hmm. you know, um, and then we got involved, and then um, we were very lucky that um, the the main curator who got involved a year or so later was Ben Saunders, you know, a fellow comic scholar. Who, uh, who, who loves comics and, and thinks deeply about them. And so the three of us had this shared vision of, we don't want this to do just a lots of props and costumes. We want this to you know, draw in the people who only know the movies and then educate them about the comics, both the history of the comics and the power of the form of the comics. All right. Um, but um, and I would not have been involved if not for Matt. Um, uh, <laughs> well, there's many things. Matt, Matt was kind of the leader uh, in this. And, and it's the serendipitous situation that, uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, 200 comic scholars would kill me to, to be in my situation yes. uh, when I was found, but it was entirely serendipitous. I, uh, I had been uh, reading Entertainment Weekly, of all things, and they did a profile of Jill Lepore's book on William Marston. And uh, there was a lovely uh, two-column image by H.G. Peter in the middle of the spread, but no credit line for him. So I, I wrote to Entertainment Weekly very dutifully and said, you need to give H.G. Peter the credit for drawing this original picture of Wonder Woman. And uh, they said, oh, we'll, we'll put this in our letters to the editor so that you know, we can give this credit. So letter to the editor appears, pictures there, credit for H.G. Peter. I thought, mission accomplished, did a good <laughs> deed. Uh, honored the, the legacy of, of, of creators uh, around the world. Um, Entertainment Weekly, it turns out, is read around the world. And uh, a gentleman named Christoph Scholz, who works for the German exhibition company that Randy had mentioned, SC Exhibitions, read the article and had just started the conversations uh, with Disney. And because he had done several other exhibits based on historical um, precedents, uh, said he needed a comics expert. Uh, to be a part of the team that was going to put this together. So he reached out to me and it, it felt, uh, because it came via email, a little bit like I was being solicited for, you know, bank transfers to Nigeria yeah. at the time. This, <laughs> this can't be real. Like, there's no way someone's actually doing an exhibit about Marvel Comics. And uh, he said, no, 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 I'm real, I'm real. And I looked him up, okay, he's real. And, uh, and he said to me, like, you know, we, we'd love to get together and, and have a meeting. Uh, where should we meet? And I said, well, if you're talking about Marvel Comics, you got to meet in New York City. Because that's that's where Marvel is, and uh, and he invited us to uh, to start to put together a team of people. And uh, uh, Frederick, you know, one of our, our our initial team members, Jenny Robb at Ohio State, uh, was a part of that uh, early conversation. And uh, uh, we brought in Danny Fingeroff, and uh, he brought in Annie Nascenti, um, and things just started to steamroll there. But uh, so grateful to Ben Saunders for being on board because without Ben, I don't think the vision that we laid out early on would have been realized. And uh, we're, we're immensely proud of this. And uh, 
Uh, we're looking forward to its next, next several stops around North America, including some town called Columbus in the not so distant future, I think. So uh, we'll hope to see you there. <laughs> I'll, I'll be there when you guys cut the ribbon. Um, was, there, was there anything that sort of um, threw you for a loop or that, you, that happened you know, during that period from April 13th to September 11th? Um, with the um, exhibit and something that you know was surprising I don't know joyful any anything well we, we were able to create our own wish list right because uh, unlike Marvel Comics which kept nothing <laughs> Marvel Studios kept everything and so uh, you, you couldn't really turn to Marvel and say hey do you have Jack Kirby's desk because we really like that um, they just don't keep things uh, at Marvel Comics, but Marvel Studios is phenomenal. And so, uh, you know, I was like, I really want the briefcase that Tony Stark carries around in Iron Man 2 to be there because when I was a child reading Iron Man comics, that was just the coolest thing in the world that Iron Man's armor was in that briefcase. So being able to sort of pick and choose the kinds of things you'd want to put in an exhibit like this was such a thrill. Yeah, yeah. And it's... Um... You know, they were very accommodating, except if something had to be, you know, embargoed because it was going to be used in an upcoming film. So, um, in Infinity War, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, took a lot of things because it's like, no, everyone's going to be in this. So, it's, you know, <laughs> all of that's going to be used. Um, but it was a little surprising. It shouldn't have been surprising um, to find out um, how we had to adjust and wait long periods of time um, for Marvel legal and Marvel brand assurance to approve everything. Mm. Um, so I still mourn my original uh, Black Widow <laughs> infographic that was go that's on the wall that uh, had to change radically because they, they said, no, um, Hawkeye and Black Widow were never in love. That's not, that's not official anymore in Marvel. That's, you know, you just gotta confuse the people who saw the movie. So, you know, so there's things like that, that um, we had to adjust, but I was really kind of pleased that they didn't let the, the tail wag the dog that much. It, it, we could do things sometimes that were comic specific that were not consistent with the movies. Um, and, and, and so, um, and the contacts that Ben had, that's why he had to be the main curator, the contacts he had with the collectors and the magnificent pieces of original art and um, kind of sitting back and doing a little bit now and then, but Ben is tending to work because some lenders, you know, only will lend for so many shows and then he has to get new material. Um, mm -hmm. And he, he, does a, he does a wonderful job on that. And the joy um, happens every time I walk into that. Mm -hmm. They fly us in every time it opens and um, you'd think I'd have it memorized, but it's still just sort of wonderful to see. Wow, amazing! Still what were the, on the couch every time? What were the numbers? Just, I mean, out of curiosity, if you've got those handy. Uh, before yeah. COVID, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're up about seven hundred and fifty thousand visitors over a period of the first two years. Wow! Yeah, wow. and it set a record for um, popular culture in um, in Seattle where it opened. Yeah, amazing, absolutely incredible. Um, of course, first and foremost, we are teachers, and uh, tell me, you know, what do you, what's the kind of trademark or the tricks of the 
teaching trade for bringing comics into your classroom spaces? kind of learning on the job without a lot of models to follow. Um, you know, as I said, I, I, I did a dissertation, which I finished um, in 1990 on the rhetoric of comics form. And then I started teaching comics courses in the early 90s um, under special topics. And I did that partly because I'm at a small liberal arts uh, university and I became a, a, a very young department chair and I gave myself permission to do that. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I was hoping at first that the dean didn't notice, but when, when administrators did, they're like, oh, that's cool. Um, so I've been in a pretty supportive uh, university who pretty early on um, decided, let's have a graphic novel and history of comics special collection in the library. And so that wonderfully supported classes. Um, and that's kind of where my perspective on the power of comics came from because I started creating exercises uh, because there wasn't a textbook uh, and kind of growing my own own textbook uh, that way. And we ended up using some of that stuff um, in there. But um, because I was in a communication department, um, the special topics course was called Comics as Communication. And I was very much using that kind of approach, looking at it as here is something that should be in every media studies textbook, which it wasn't at the time, you know, here's, here's a chapter on newspaper, a chapter on radio, a chapter on television, and I was teaching the chapter on comics. And actually, I would guest lecture in the mass media intro course one day talking about comics, um, because it wasn't in the, that textbook. Um, and then kind of gradually grew it um, into uh, what became a minor at Henderson and thought about what other courses um, need to come along. And, and once I met Matt and we're starting to make books that fulfill those, suddenly I have textbooks to use, you know, when I'm, I'm teaching those, those courses. Um, it was kind of interesting in that I saw um, the growth because I was, uh, I knew most of the people who were, were teaching comics through uh, the Popular Culture Association. I knew a lot of them. And then um, we also started the, the uh, Comics Arts Conference in 92 and, and got to know more comic scholars. Um, and so um, you would see people, you know, have a unit <laughs> uh, of an introductory class, an English you know, lit class. Um, you would see more people start to do uh, special topics courses. And then it seems like suddenly somewhere, almost every English department had a graphic novel course, you know, and, and so, um, and now the great diversity of people looking at it from all different perspectives. You know, whatever discipline they're in, these people who grew up loving comics are finding a way to, to teach comics in that, that field. So um, it's been very gratifying to, to see from, from early 90s, you know, how this has grown and how there's, there's no one way to teach comics. You teach comics from kind of like we do with most of our courses, that what we bring with our personal expertise, you know, and passion. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, we hope that some of the books we've, we've done maybe have helped people along the way, but you know, certainly people are doing things vastly different that they don't need any of those books uh, to do it. And um, boy, you can't even keep up now with all the literature in the field, which is a wonderful problem to have, but it's frustrating at the same time. Uh, yeah, and I, I very similar to Randy, you know, sort of developing topics courses early on, but 
that first trip to San Diego Comic-Con was life-changing on, on many fronts, uh, not only meeting Randy Duncan, but also sort of inspiring me to think about uh, teaching a summer field study in the confines of Comic-Con. And so uh, with the Comic Arts Conference's support, um, I started bringing students out in 2006. And the idea was to look at the dynamics between the fans who were there to celebrate their love of pop culture and the cultural industries, which were there, of course, to market the next big thing in pop culture and really look at those dynamics from a critical perspective and, and begin to think about the ways in which fans and producers interacted in the unique climate, which is Comic-Con. And uh, 14 years in a row, right up till uh, Comic-Con got canceled this year, uh, we've been able to take students out and, and really study uh, those phenomena. And uh, it's it's been fascinating. You know, the, the the great thing about working with the next generation of students, and, and you both know this, of course, is they think of things you wouldn't have thought of. And so, uh, you know, for 14 years, I go to Comic-Con, I think, I've seen it all, right? I, like, I've been to all these things and been to the masquerade, been to this, been to that. Um, I'll be darned. There's always like five students who come up with something totally different that I didn't know was going on at Comic-Con. They're like, yeah, I'm looking at this Disney pin, pin collector thing. I'm like, there are Disney pin collectors here? What? Um, <laughs> students are just fascinating the way they just sort of find the, the other elements of, of what goes on there and, and just bring that out and, and bring it up. And uh, uh, I get the privilege of saying I, I teach the course, but really I'm there as a student. I get to learn about pop culture because the, the students help me to see things I wouldn't have otherwise found. Yeah. Oh, what a great <laughs> thing for the students. I'm going to steal that, Matthew. <laughs> Have fun. I mean, yes, Fort <laughs> University had been, um, and and one of the things that they've been great about over the years, till our recent financial troubles, was um, giving me a little grant uh, to bring in uh, a comics professional every spring. Um, and we did that first in the early '90s with Will Eisner, which was kind of starting at the top. Um, <laughs> but I I interviewed him for my dissertation, and so I got to know him a little bit. Um, uh, and um, um, but then we started on a regular basis bringing people in, and um, actually Scott McLeod came three times. So that, that picture of my students there getting their, their work looked at by Scott um, is um, probably because I got to know him early on. But um, this one is that because um, we got to the point where we couldn't afford him. My little grant was like, you know, a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars honorarium and travel expenses. But uh, Scott and I, we were going to a, um, a wedding in Arkansas, <laughs> oh, okay. and, and he said, hey, I'll give you a discount, Randy, and, and I said, oh, I've already used my grant on someone else this time, and uh, we just can't do it, so he said, well, put us up, you know, in a hotel, <laughs> uh, but anyway, after he talked to the class, Ivy wanted to go get the highlights in her hair redone before the wedding, so I took her off looking for a beauty salon that had enough purple um, <laughs> hair dye, and Scott was stuck there for an hour in the classroom, but the students just had him all to themselves. And I'm like, you guys do not know how lucky you are because Scott is just like the nicest guy in the world. So he just graciously looked at all their stuff, answered their questions. And, you know, yeah, lovely. I think that's a really, uh, I love that uh, strategy as well. Both of your strategies. Um, I love both of them. Um, so Randy, this is maybe more a question for you. Um, but of course, you know, let's take it wherever. 
uh, comic studies at Henderson State. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about this and the importance of it? Um, well, I kind of talked about the beginnings of it and gradually teaching courses, and then we got um, a few years back uh, an official minor in comic studies. Um, and I thought, well, why not that a little farther? Because we have resources here, because I have lots of contacts with professionals um, and, and comic scholars. Um, even though we're in, you know, a small town in rural Arkansas, um, uh, I said, let's, let's see if we can't create a center for comic studies, um, which was just getting off the ground. <laughs> um, kind of when we had our financial troubles and then just started to do the first programming this semester right before COVID. So for example, I was doing a series of lectures uh, for the Central Arkansas Library System, going to different libraries and giving talks and workshops. Uh, one of them on creating memoir comics. And, um, and so I got to do one of those before, before COVID shut everything down. So I'm a little worried about, you know, can we keep momentum for that? Um, the Chamber of Commerce here was gonna have a, a coffee at the center, kind of a meet and greet for the community. Uh, and obviously we can't do those sorts of things, but um, uh, I'm hoping that I can um, do some things during the summer to kind of you know, keep some presence for that. And, and once we're functioning normally again, get that up and going. But I see it as something that uh, is gonna help generate more comic scholarship um, for maybe people who aren't involved that much. I've got, um, I think it's 13 or 14 people on the Henderson campus that agreed to be affiliated faculty. And they're affiliated faculty because they all have an interest in doing some things with teaching or researching comics. Some of them have presented at the Comics Arts Conference. Uh, some of them have been published already. Uh, one of them is Travis Langley, who's the associate director of the center. And you may know Travis's work. Uh, Travis is probably making more money than any of us out of uh, comic scholarship. Uh, <laughs> And then his books sell more than most uh, do. And, um, you know, it's, it's not all just comics. It's, it's popular culture across the board and psychology. Um, but, but I think we have the resources here to make a go of this. And I think we have some um, people in the industry who are willing to be on the advisory board um, once we get up and going. And I'm hoping we can get some grants in. Uh, but the timing was not good for starting something new uh, right now. But... Uh, yeah, so important though, and I hope um, you can continue the momentum, maybe even virtual, you know, while it's, you know, you yes. know, just to keep the continuity, right? Um, and you're right, these spaces are so important. Um, let me um, move us kind of here to, you know, what your sense of both of you, this is a question about really like, you know, I mean, in a way we've kind of been answering it. There's a lot of energy, a lot of positive energy, a lot of camaraderie, community. Um, but what is your kind of global sense of comic studies today? Yeah, I, th I think there's a lot of energy um, around the, the sort of formalizing of the field, if you want to call it that. Um, you know, we, we have an association now, the Comic Studies Society, which is a learned society like we find in almost any discipline out there. Um, you know, we have regular conferences, uh, starting with the Comic Arts Conference in the 90s, but uh, with ICAF and the Comic Studies Society and two dozen other <laughs> regular conferences, 
out there, you know, becoming sort of um, ways in which people can find outlets and community. Um, I think that's so important. You know, part of the motivation for writing uh, The Secret Origin of Comic Studies was really to begin to, to give a history to comic studies, give people a sense of identity, a sense of origin, and a sense that this, this came from somewhere, and it came from some people who were thinking about this very seriously, intentionally. And so I, I think a lot of the energy right now is, is, is not only just sort of figuring out who we are as community, but also looking ahead to supporting the next generation of scholars. And I think a lot of us came up through uh, the ranks, you know, sort of fumbling around and, and trying to find our own way, but being more intentional now about reaching out to the next generation and providing more intentional mentoring relationships, providing more courses or opportunities to do research in which we partner with these upcoming students so they don't have to quite go through the, the hard knocks that many of us experienced. And we can sort of foster and, and generate a, a next generation that, that feels very secure in what they're doing and moving the field forward. You might have noticed that um, the first Critical Approaches book had a lot of very familiar names, people who were big names in the field at, at the time, like Pascal Lefebvre, and, uh, and that the more Critical Approaches has quite a few new names. Um, and, and that's partly um, because there's so many more people entering. Um, and and, and uh, even though I think, I haven't counted this for sure, but I think the majority of, of people who contributed might have come from English departments, but they were also um, philosophers, historians, um, and even people who were in English departments are coming at it from, you know, psychoanalytic criticism, um, linguistics, um, critical geography, post-colonial studies, and, and so that diversity that I talked about before of, of whatever um, people's, you know, research agenda uh, is that they've built often off of their dissertation, they're finding a way to bring comics into that. Um, uh, and um, and um, you might notice that neither one of us is the lead editor of, of more critical approaches that, that Matthew Brown is. Uh, and that's not because he needs our, our help necessarily. Uh, he, he's, he's distinguishing himself just fine as a scholar, but it's, it's the reaching out um, partly because he understands perspectives that we don't. Neither one of us has done much with, you know, digital humanities and, and big data um, sorts of things, but that's certainly a, a growing field and there's lots of ongoing projects as those things have to be ongoing, you know, uh, projects. Um, so it's important to us that, um, you know, I, I'm more of an old fogey than Matt is, uh, <laughs> but uh, we, we needed some, um, New blood, fresh perspective, we thought, uh, on this one. And it was great working with Matthew um, on it. Really wonderful. So, yeah, what are you, what's next for this, you, the dynamic duo? Well, we, we had been working on a conference. <laughs> <laughs> so Randy and I were, were co-chairs of the Comic Studies Society's uh, 2020 conference, uh, Communication and Technology. Uh, but obviously the pandemic uh, sort of intruded on that notion. And so uh, the conference will not be taking place, sadly enough. Uh, but we were really looking forward to working with that. Uh, Henderson was going to be gracious enough to host us down in Arkadelphia. And uh, we're really sad that that particular event is not going to happen. But we're staying busy, um, even during this time, with... Um what, about half a dozen or so things that are in various stages of development in the Rutledge series. Um, uh, we can't do that recruiting at the at conferences. Uh, 
uh, that we have talked about necessarily, but um, we kind of be more aggressive in uh, in our email recruiting. Um, um, and we've been approached by our uh, Bloomsbury editor about the you know exploring the possibility of a third edition of the Power of Comics, which we have ideas about what what could be added to that that that, that you know ways it needs to be updated. Um, I just think it'd also be a nice statement about the ability comic studies. That something's gone to a third edition. Kind of legit to quit, as you can see, Hammer would say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Let me ask you both um, as we kind of wrap this up. Um, what on the proverbial nightstand? Randy and Matt, uh, what do you have comics wise? What's, what are you reading right now? What's exciting to you? Well, I'm, I'm teaching six classes this semester. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. I'm, I'm reading student papers, uh, especially right now. Our, our grades have to be turned in on, on Thursday. Um, and, um, Barrier was an interesting book that I read recently. You're, are you familiar with that one, Frederick? No, I'm not. Oh, you definitely need to be familiar with that. Uh, in a future edition of one of your books. Um, oh, uh, Brian K. Vaughn is the writer. And um, pretty sure it's Marcos Martin, who's the artist on that. Who, who I love Marcos Martin's work. Um, and it is... Um, Partially in English and partially in non-translated uh, Spanish and partially in a non-translated, totally alien language. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a very interesting book, and, and um, you know those two people do do some interesting stuff, and so that's good to look at. I um, yeah, I, I keep I never read all that much DC, um, but I keep up with Marvel a good bit because I have the Marvel Unlimited. So um, even though there's like a a huge stack of unread floppy comic books. On top of that, there's the iPad. <laughs> and I'm often reading things on that on that iPad um, as far as mainstream comics, because I, I have DC Universe and, and Marvel Unlimited. And, um, and, and I'll go back and I'll um, discover, you know, older stuff that I, I want to read as, as well. Um, I find I read lots of image comics. You know, sometimes only one or two issues, and then I never see a third issue. Um, but, there's, but there's a lot of interesting concepts that they're, they're developing that are in various genres and some that are non-genre. I'm, uh, I'm really fascinated uh, over the last several years about how uh, Marvel in particular, but DC as well, have, have really tried to go after a female market, or at least they seem to be going after a female market with female-driven uh, characters. And so uh, percolating somewhere in the back of my head is, is, is a project that uh, I'm going to use to justify all the reading I've been doing. But, uh, but you know, I've, I'm fascinated by something like um, Watley's Unstoppable Wasp. Um, it's just so different from anything that I would have thought of as mainstream superhero over the last 40 years. Um, but yet it still clearly is superhero, but it's clearly targeting a different audience than, you know, 49-year-old white males, uh, but I'm, I'm really just intrigued by 
sort of taking the vernacular of comics uh, superheroes and, and sort of trying to translate that to a different audience. And so um, I'm missing that series, strangely enough. Uh, but but I'd like, I'm really fascinated by just sort of the attempts. Dr. Afra is another example of that. You know, just trying to reach out to the female audience a little more intentionally with superheroes. And, and what does that say or what, what does that mean? Um, moving ahead. So yeah, there's, there's something percolating there. And I'm, 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 I guess I'm doing the research by, uh, by going through and, and, and reading those comics on a regular basis. Wow, I love it. I can't wait for, uh, for that next book. Um, gosh, Randy and Matthew, thank you for sharing your journey, your knowledge, your gift of really being there to help establish and grow comic studies. Thank you both. Thank you, Frederick. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks for inviting us, Frederick.